We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Greetings this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has risen from the dead, and we are so grateful for that truth. Let us pray together. Father, as we come this morning, we're probably not as early in the morning as what Mary came to the tomb, what time she came, because she was so anxious to get there, to be able to do for the Lord what she thought to do that day with her friends to finish the anointing of his body for burial. But the great news was that she encountered an angel there who said he is not here, but he's risen. See the place where he lay, and it was empty. God, we thank you for that. We thank you because, as we'll see later this morning, even in this hour with the message from the Word, that this uh, resurrection of Christ has major implications for us as Christians, for the whole human race, for the destiny of the world. And uh, we thank you for those truths. Help us to uh, meditate on them this morning and really grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ because of them. We pray others will be on their way here this morning soon and join us as we sing. May Christ be honored May you be honored, Father. May the Spirit of God be active in our midst, working in our hearts to bring us into appreciation of the truth of history, of your word, and of the theology, the meaning of Christ's death for us and his resurrection. So thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. For our scripture reading, I'd like to ask you, if you have a Bible, to turn it to John's Gospel, the fourth book in the New Testament, John's Gospel, chapter 20, almost at the very end of John, chapter 20, we'll read verses 1 through 18, John 20, 1 through 18. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Then he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know or really understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, 
And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Well, I'm grateful for that little bit of history that's been recorded for us here. Uh, Let's invite Brother Jansen to come and share the word this morning. I'll swap spots with you there, Jansen. I want to welcome him to share this morning and hope you'll be blessed. We'll have this service till about 9.30, and then a little break as we get ready for breakfast at 9.45. I know it's early, but uh, crack open those Bibles, if you would, this morning. And uh, I'd like you to turn to Acts uh, chapter 26 to begin with, and we'll be there in just a moment. We'll start there this morning. But I've titled this morning's message this, The True and Reasonable Doctrine of Christ's Resurrection. The true and reasonable doctrine of Christ's resurrection. And you'll see why uh, I, I titled it that in just a moment in Acts 26. If you'll turn there. As you think about the, the fact of Christ's resurrection, it was necessarily miraculous because, well, we don't see people being risen from the dead all over the place on a daily occurrence or even an annual occurrence. And so it was necessarily miraculous. Christ was dead. That was confirmed by the fact that he was buried. And then he was out of the grave. We see this in various texts. So it was necessarily miraculous, yet at the same time, it was true and reasonable to say that it did indeed occur. Um, And to some people, those wouldn't go together. You know, if it's miraculous, it's supernatural, perhaps they deny that, anything that's, you know, metaphysical. And so they say, no, could could not have happened. Those things don't occur. And it's therefore not true or reasonable to say that Christ rose again. But in fact, he did, and Scripture attests to this. Not only is it true, and therefore we believe it because it is true, but it also is reasonable to believe it as the truth. And that's where we come this morning to our text in Acts chapter 26. Perhaps not the common text you might start an Easter Sunday service with, but I want to uh, ask you to look there just for a moment and think on a few things before we continue on this morning. Here in Acts chapter 26, Paul is standing uh, before King Agrippa and giving his testimony and uh, It says this in verse 19, Paul speaking to King Agrippa. He says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, 
but declared it first to those in Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, verse 22, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses would come, that, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And this is the message that Paul was preaching and speaking and for which the Jews were hating him over. And this is what uh, King Agrippa says here in response. He says, Now as he thus made his defense, uh, or excuse me, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Look what Paul says in response. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. The words of truth and reason. So Paul, as he shared the testimony, his testimony, the proclaimed the gospel of Christ, both dying and rising again, Paul says, I'm not mad over much learning over this, but rather what I say, the words that I speak are true and reasonable. True and reasonable. Of course, as we said at the beginning, sometimes the, the miraculous doesn't seem reasonable at all in our minds, in our finite minds, but in fact, Paul says it is, and so we have to believe that it is. And I think it's on this basis, which we'll look at this morning, that he says it is reasonable, and it's because the prophets and Moses attest to this fact, that Christ would die and rise again. And so we have the testimony of the Old Testament, the fact that the Old Testament anticipates Christ's resurrection. And let me turn your attention to one other passage here in the New Testament before we look at uh, one or two in the Old. In Luke chapter uh, 24, Luke chapter 24, Christ, at this point, has already risen from the grave, and he's walking down a road, and there's two disciples that are walking there. And he says this in verse 25 to these disciples. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, what I take this to mean is not that every passage in the Old Testament speaks of Christ, but that Christ took them to every portion in the Old Testament that uh, was concerning himself and concerning his coming and his death and resurrection. And then look at verse 46. Same chapter. After expounding upon all these things and then gathering um, his disciples together, he said in verse actually 44, Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins would be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And so from these texts, we learn that the Old Testament anticipates Christ's resurrection. And on this basis and others that we'll look at this morning, it is true and reasonable to say that Christ did rise from the dead. Now, I don't want to steal all the thunder from Pastor later on, but I want to take you to one text here in the Old Testament that I think he's going to touch on, but that's Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19. And here we see that even Job, one of the earliest members of the earth, if I can put it that way, said this concerning Christ, though he didn't know him by name, didn't know all the revelation that we have today, but he did have this understanding of Christ and his resurrection and his Redeemer. And in Job chapter 19, I don't think I have the right text here. Is it 49? 25, thank you. Job 19, 25. Job says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job, of course, didn't have, like I said, all the revelation that we have of Christ's coming and his death and his burial and resurrection, but he did know this, that there was a Redeemer. He anticipated this fact, and he knew that this Redeemer would is living and would still be living when he sees him. And so, Regardless of the fact that Christ was put to death, this Redeemer died for the sins of Job and others. He knew that his Redeemer lives. And he knew he would see him one day, alive, and in his own flesh, he would see God. Another text that anticipates Christ's resurrection is in Psalm chapter 16, or Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 10. The psalm is written by David, King David. And he says this in verse, beginning in verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We know this text anticipates Christ's resurrection because of uh, what some of the New Testament apostles say concerning this text, which we'll look at later on this morning in our message. But we see from Job chapter 19 and Psalm 16, some would even say chapter 17 verse 15 anticipates 
Christ's resurrection in Psalm 110.1 implies that if he is uh, seated at the right hand of God, then therefore he must be alive today. Other texts anticipate the resurrection of the godly, perhaps without a clear reference to Christ's death, but uh, those passages being Daniel 12 and Isaiah 26, Psalm 49, 15, Psalm 71, 20. We could add to these the unfulfilled promises to Abraham, to Abraham and his seed of a future life on earth, Genesis 12, 7 and chapter 13, verse 15. And all these culminate together to teach us this, that the Old Testament anticipates Christ's resurrection. This wasn't uh, new news, so to speak, but rather something that if looked closely at in the Old Testament, even the disciples and others could have understood that Christ uh, would rise from the dead. The very fact that I just said a moment ago that the Messiah takes his seat at the right hand of the Father proves that he has risen from the dead. He couldn't both be dead and yet sitting at the right hand of God. And so we, we understand the fact that he is alive today. His exaltation is, assumes that he is no longer in the grave. Jesus uses Psalm 110 in Matthew 22 to reveal to the Pharisees that he was indeed the Lord. But it's not only the Old Testament that anticipates Christ's resurrection. This indeed makes it true and reasonable to say that Christ rose from the dead and not uh, doesn't make one insane to say it like Festus thought of Paul. But there's other texts as well that we find. In fact, the New Testament anticipates Christ's resurrection as well, and perhaps this is where we find uh, a large portion of our foundation for this argument. Beginning in John chapter 2, if you'll turn there, John chapter 2, or just listen as I read, chapter 2 of John, beginning in verse 19. John chapter 2:19 Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, "Who are you?" He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, "I am not the Christ." And they asked him, "What then? Are you Elijah?" He said, "I am not. Are you a prophet?" He answered, "No." Then they said to him, "Who are you that we might give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself?" And he said, "I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness." Make straight the way of the Lord. John understood himself, obviously, not to be the Christ, but one preparing the way for the Christ who would come, the Lord of heavens, and to die and to rise again. Other scriptures tell us that Christ spoke to them, saying, Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. Of course, this kind of obscure reference was hard for them to understand. You know, they spoke of the fact that, look at this temple, taking years to be constructed, and yet you say, you know, you'll tear it down and raise it again in three days. But, of course, we know, and Scripture tells us, that the temple which he spoke of was not the literal physical brick and mortar, but the temple of his body. 
In John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, John chapter 10, just a few chapters later, Jesus says this. He says in verse 17, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again, that is, take it back up, to raise it back to life. Verse 18, no one takes it from me. This was a voluntary sacrifice. He was not coerced, but he submitted to his Father's will. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power, he says, to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. We're building the case here this morning that the Old Testament anticipates Christ's resurrection, but also does the new, and even Jesus' own words predict this fact, that he has the power to, to lay it down, but also to bring it to life, to raise himself back up to life. John chapter 11, verse 23. John eleven twenty three, just one chapter over. Jesus has arrived too late in Martha's mind, though, for Lazarus to be healed. Jesus says this to her in verse 23. He said to her, that is Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asks. She responds in faith and says to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. John chapter 14, just a few chapters later in your Bible. He says, beginning in verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that, you, that he may abide with you forever. In the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Verse 19, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you will also live, you, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you and me, and I and you. On the very basis of the fact that Jesus lives, we have the hope that as believers we will also live also, we will be resurrected. Christ builds this foundation in this very fact that he also lives and lives today. Matthew chapter 16 I have you turning this morning, Matthew chapter 16, 
verse 21. Jesus says to his disciples here, from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Just harking back to where we started this morning, we said, indeed, it was necessarily a miracle that Christ rose again, but it wasn't a mystery that he would die and rise again. The Old Testament anticipates it. Jesus spoke of it, sometimes in more obscure manners, but other times very plainly, especially to his disciples. You would think of any of them, they wouldn't be surprised when they found the tomb empty the third day, as plainly told them, but of course... uh, didn't seem reasonable to them, and their, perhaps their mind was clouded by the grief they were experiencing. This is not what they thought Christ was going to do, but indeed it is what he said he was going to do. Jesus, uh, from that time on, we, we see, began to explain to his disciples that he must go and suffer and at the hands of the elders and chief priests and be killed and be raised to life. Jesus told them this multiple times. Uh, Turn over to Matthew 17, verse 23. We'll read that one. He says this in verse 22. Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. What about Mark chapter 8, verse 31? You can just listen as I read a few of these here. Mark chapter 8, 31 says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. Chapter 9, verse 31 For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed in the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. I think you're getting the picture. Luke 9, I'm not going to read this, but Luke 9, 22, accounts the similar instance where he tells them this. And then also uh, in Luke 24, 6 through 7. We know that Jesus did plainly speak this to the disciples, and other times he, in a more obscure way, told the the crowds, the multitudes, that he would rise again, and so it was anticipated that he he would do this on the third day, yet still it seemed in some people's minds that it was insane. Without reason, could not be true. Matthew 17, 9, Jesus instructs them there to Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And then in Matthew chapter 20, 17 to 19, Jesus tells them this. We're going to Jerusalem, he tells them, and the Son of Man will be betrayed. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. But, he tells them, on the third day, He will be raised to life. Jesus clearly predicts his death and his resurrection. 
tells them plainly this is going to happen, and it's going to happen soon. Don't be surprised. Be ready. But he doesn't leave out the key detail that will rise again. (laughs) Notice that in all these passages. I will rise again. I will be betrayed and killed, but I will rise again. Well, not only does the Old Testament anticipate this, as well as Jesus in his own speaking and teaching to his disciples and the other crowds that he spoke to and preached to, and, but also there are other New Testament eyewitnesses to this very fact. Before, we looked at verses before his resurrection, before his death, but also there are texts that teach us that there were eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection therefore making it all the more true and reasonable to believe and like paul said to festus that christ did indeed rise from the dead of course we know there are the resurrection accounts recorded in all four gospels from all different from four different perspectives four different understandings and views of this four different people We have all four records of Christ's resurrection. Matthew 28, Mark 16 records this. Luke 24, John chapter 20. All four men attesting to the fact that Christ did indeed rise from the dead. But we don't only have these four passages in the gospel accounts. We also have it throughout all of the New Testament scriptures. It was the central theme of every early sermon and it was often the, the watershed between proponents from opponents of the gospel. Look with me just for a moment this morning at Acts chapter 2. From very early on in Christ's resurrection, or after his resurrection, and the early church is being established not that long after Christ ascends, after his resurrection into heaven. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, we see this. Peter speaks to the multitude, saying this, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up having loosened the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. What about Acts chapter 4? We're looking here at the early sermons which attested and proclaimed the fact that Christ did rise from the dead and it was crucial, it was foundational to the gospel message which they preached. If they didn't believe it to be true, then why were they standing there preaching it? Why would they say such things that caused them such pain and persecution? On another end, if it weren't that important, why would they continue to repeat the fact that Christ did indeed rise from the dead? Acts chapter 4, verse 1, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. What about verse 10 of the same chapter? Uh, verse 8, 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Verse 33 of Acts chapter 4. Beginning in verse 32, though, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. I hope you're seeing the case that we're trying to build this morning, that it was foundational to the apostles that Christ did indeed rise from the dead. It was true, and it was reasonable to say this and to preach it because it was foundational to the gospel of Christ Jesus. What hope do we have in a a dead God? (laughs) No, he rose from the dead. He did not stay dead. He did not stay in the grave, but he indeed rose from the dead. Acts chapter 5. Let me take you just to a few more. Acts chapter 5. Actually, go to Acts chapter 10, if you would. Acts chapter 10, verse 39. We read this just a few weeks ago on Sunday morning. Peter is summoned uh, to Cornelius' household, a Gentile, a God-fearing man. man. And he comes to Cornelius' household, and Cornelius has gathered his household, perhaps his friends, his neighbors, to hear what Peter has to say. And Peter begins to preach the gospel to them. And he says, uh, picking up in verse 39, he says, And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, that is, witnesses of the things that Christ did, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him, that is Christ, God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. So it's not just our testimony. God showed him openly. There were eyewitnesses of the very risen Christ. Verse, or chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 30. Let me start back in verse 29. It says, Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witnesses who are his witnesses to the people. God has fulfilled this for us, their, for us, their children, and that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption, Psalm 16. And here's the case we make that uh, 
Psalm 16 has as Christ in mind. It says in verse 36, For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep. That is, he died. He was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by, every, and by him, everyone who believes is justified from all the things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. It was the, as we have seen, it, it was the central theme of every early sermon. It was crucial to the gospel message that not, Christ not only died and was buried, but he rose again. And that was confirmed by the fact that there, he, was, he was shown openly to the people. He was seen alive. Interestingly, it was also the, the, the Christ's resurrection was, it was codified, including the eyewitness accounts, into one of the earliest known Christian creeds. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I believe 1 Corinthians 15 would have been, a, and what we find in here, would have been a very familiar kind of creed, uh, an understanding of very, uh, the, full of truths that were, were widely accepted amongst the early church concerning Christ and his death and resurrection and the eyewitnesses of his resurrection. In chapter 15, verse 3, Paul writes this, For I delivered to you, first of all, that that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born, out of due time. Christ's resurrection was widely accepted. It was really codified, in a sense, into kind of a creed that was accepted amongst the early church as truth, as foundational doctrine to, to, their, to their faith. It was also a necessary foundation for numerous theological truths, which we won't look at this morning but it's foundational to the fact that by his very resurrection, we know that the Father accepted his atoning work of dying on the cross, a substitutionary death for our sin, and amongst many other foundational theological truths. So we've seen just in a few moments this morning that it is true and reasonable to accept the fact that Christ rose from the dead anticipated in the Old Testament, anticipated in the New Testament by Jesus' own words and by the words of the apostles who were witnesses of the resurrection. We see it in all four gospel accounts. We see it throughout the book of Acts and throughout the rest of the New Testament that it was foundational to these truths, which they believed to be true, to be reasonable. Yet, not all thought that it was true and reasonable. Festus and King Agrippa certainly didn't think so. Remember what the chief priests thought concerning the resurrection? Matthew chapter 28. 
in verse 11. This is after Christ was raised. The soldiers came and it says, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened, that is, happened concerning Christ's resurrection and the empty tomb. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. We see a number of responses to the resurrection, the first here being that the chief priests attempted to suppress the truth of the resurrection by giving a bribe and saying, well, we'll take care of this, you know, spread this lie instead. Some try to suppress the truth that Christ did rise from the dead. Others sneer at the very fact of it because it seems unreasonable, too supernatural. Acts chapter 17, we see this kind of response in Acts 17, uh, verse 18, says, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, that is Paul, and, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he might, he seemed to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus in the resurrection. And then in verse 30 of that same pas- pa- passage, Paul says this to them, to these philosophers, truly these times of ignorance God Overlook, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a date on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Look at their response. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, they sneered, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. Some seek to suppress it, others mock the very idea. Some, though, curious, but perhaps, well, just interesting facts to know. We see in going back to Acts chapter 26, where we began this morning, in Acts 26, verse 28, look what Agrippa's response is. Actually, look with me at uh, again back at verse 25. He says, But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and, and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. In other words, Paul says, This is widely known. It's spread quickly, the very fact of Christ's resurrection. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would, I would to God that not only you, but, all, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. That is to say, to believe in what I believe, to accept what I believe as the truth, because it is the truth. Except here, you know, don't be in the chains like I am. Some are almost persuaded, yet whether it be it requires too much faith, whether it requires the fact that they have to admit to 
the fact that they need a Savior, a Redeemer. They need this risen Lord salvation. Others doubt. I want to turn there as we close this morning with John chapter 20. Oftentimes we talk about doubting Thomas. Maybe we quickly kind of throw him under the bus for the doubt that he expressed. And though it's true, he did express doubt. I wonder, were there other disciples that were just as doubtful but perhaps not as transparent about it? We don't know that. Scripture doesn't tell us that, but we could assume that's possibly true. John chapter 20, verse 24. Some of the disciples, uh, or many of them, saw Christ when they were in, in a room and Christ appears to them, but Thomas wasn't there. And so in verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his hands in the prince the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, we see that his belief and faith is restored. Twenty verse uh, twenty six picks up and it says, And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas this time was with them. Jesus came, and the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. The Lord graciously revealed himself to Thomas in this instance, and though we often, maybe, perhaps, you know, uh, as I said, throw him under the bus for being doubtful of this, look at his response. It wasn't like the chief priests who suppressed the truth, attempted to. It wasn't like uh, those in Athens, the philosophers, who sneered and mocked. It wasn't even like King Agrippa, who was almost persuaded, yet without faith. Rather, Thomas, though doubting for a time, says this concerning Christ says in verse 28, he answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. He believed. But notice this. And my point this morning is not just to prove the evidence of Christ's resurrection. It is that. But it is more than that. It is more than the fact, the, the historical fact that we can prove that Christ did indeed rise from the, the dead. And it's true and reasonable to say that. We're not just stopping there this morning. Rather, it is to say that not only did he rise from the dead, but the very fact of Christ's resurrection amongst all the other things that Christ did proved that he is very, he is indeed fact, Lord and God. He is Lord and God. What is your understanding of Christ's resurrection? Perhaps you doubt. Perhaps you're almost persuaded. Perhaps you think it's foolish. You're insane to believe that. But it is true and reasonable to accept that Christ did indeed rise from the dead. And like Thomas professed, not only did he rise again, but he is indeed 
Lord and God. Will you believe that? I hope. Put your faith in him. Believe, as Thomas did, that Christ indeed is Lord. He is the Savior, the Redeemer, the resurrection, and the life. Let's pray as we close this morning. Heavenly Father, we've seen from your word the very fact that you your own resurrection, your death and resurrection were anticipated from long ago, centuries before Christ even came to earth. And it is believe, being believed and is believed as the truth thousands of years after. Lord, it is not insane to believe this, but it is true and reasonable to believe in the death and resurrection of our Lord. May we, as the early church did, accept this as the truth and proclaim it with much boldness, unashamedness, Lord, that you are Lord and God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.